0: One of the lenses I want to suggest would be to consider the gospel through the lens of initiation. We feel responsible to have a kind of 30-minute conversation that ends with the sitcom making sense. Uh, no.
1: Sometimes the vision
0: can cause you to
2: stop. The vision doesn't drive you, the vision can actually constrain you. You just think, well gosh, that's way bigger than I am, that's way bigger than
0: my skills. If your spiritual life does not have a regular dose of adventure to it, it's not going to sustain the masculine soul. Welcome back, guys and gals. Our longtime listeners, you might be surprised that we haven't taken a season break. We did that last year, we would do 12 episodes and then take a month off and air another 12 we decided this year that we're just going to keep rolling. Uh, we think it's better for us and for you uh, if we just kind of know that we're on on Tuesdays. So glad you've been sticking with us. This week we've got a really phenomenal podcast for you guys.
1: Yeah. So Bart Gavigan, where to start? You remember our friend Mark Evans, um, the brilliant artist based in London right now, um, leather etching, and we sort of asked him. Uh, a long time ago, of if we could have a conversation with any mentor of yours who sort of reveals the artistic life, reveals what it means to walk with God, who would that be? And he um told us, Bart, and then we've been waiting for the opportunity because Bart Gavigan, a uh, filmmaker, but mostly a writer, um screenwriter. And yet his story is pretty unbelievable in the worlds that he bridges. Uh, on one day, he might be, with the Hollywood A-list, helping to hash out story ideas or working with um, some pretty major screenwriters, as you'll see. And then the next day, he might actually just be helping missions and charity projects around the world tell their stories, entering war zones and some of the worst orphanages of the world, Um, not necessarily to produce a great film, but because he loves to connect with people.
0: Yeah. I think that was something that I would take away and, and be listening for is his presence and interpretation of events. There's lots of people that are a part of different stages of his story, his childhood in slums, his journey um, as a filmmaker, yet his eyes to see what's happening around him, I think are really unique. And he is walking out what he believes to be true. Like I mean, he admits that there's some wavering and the day-to-day of, you know, ultimate happy feelings maybe. But in the events that he describes and the stories that he tells, I I was most struck by his ability to see things in their context and to see the story in them and to have this whimsical relationship with God that I was really inspired by. So I know you guys are going to enjoy this one. And uh, without further ado, here you go.
1: Bart. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to the Anson's Podcast.
2: Thank you. So glad to be here.
1: So you mentioned as we were just chatting before we got rolling that at one point in time, you did 60 different shoots in five years in countries around the world. I kind of wonder, how is that even possible? How did that happen?
2: With difficulty. (laughs) Uh, it, it happened in, in two ways. One was I had a, a very excellent admin team who really had to just learn about countries, set things up. And, um, and then on the other side, uh, some of those shoots were with the BBC doing um, specials for the BBC. And then a lot of them came about because of a man who I didn't know at all uh, called Reinhard Bonnke. Uh, pursued me for months. I mean, he literally rang every day at my office, and uh, I had a PA who screened things for me, and so on. And and she would come exasperated to me and say, "There's a man who rings every day, and he's called Reinhard Bonke, and he wants to speak to you." And I would say, "Oh well, uh, tell him to put down a one sheet and a six sheet, and what's the project he wants to do or look at, and maybe I'll be a consultant." "What What's the want? And he and said, "Well, he's done all that." He's done all that for months, but he wants to meet with you. And so eventually um, I said to Brian, I didn't speak to him personally. I said, okay, tell him he can come for one hour. And I think it was in 1996. He can come for one hour and i will it's a Friday and I'll gladly meet with him and we'll talk and so on. And about three days later, I had some interns who were from Germany and um, they came in and they pointed we did a huge diary portrait, as you can imagine, took up a whole wall. And they said, is that the Reinhard Bonnke? And I said, I don't know. He's just a guy who's been ringing every day and wants to talk to me. And they both looked at him and they said, you don't know who he is, do you? And I said, not really. And they said, well, let's put it this way, Bart. In most of the third world, they think he's the Pope. <laughs> and so it began this journey with Reinhardt. And if you don't know Reinhard, Reinhard is one of the most humble, amazing men I've ever met. His whole calling is to go and talk and preach and tell stories, really. Um, but in the third world. And so we ended up traveling together and he had his own teams and so on but he wanted me to do a special project for him and i knew i forced it because i knew it would take five years of my life um years i didn't want to give at that time but as usual god intervened in that and um made it clear that's what he wanted so it began this amazing journey which um took me to places i i just can't imagine or places that uh, sometimes when i look back i think how did we survive there <laughs> how did we get out of that life Or it took me to places where, in terms of, say, things that most people have never seen, just witnessing things where I remember one night, for example, I saw the whole deaf and dumb school healed en masse. And I turned around and I saw their teachers crying because they'd lost their job now. And so it took me into a world where you saw miracles, you saw people trying to have miracles, you saw People trying to be healed and falling over on their crutches and so on. It took you into a world of horror and just God's joy and power. Um, And I didn't always behave very well in it. Like I'm a typical filmmaker, typical creator. So I remember one day, um, I think nine people born blind in a row were healed. And I remember saying to God, well, this doesn't help me, you know. One of them would be enough, you know. Give me something else. This is nine, you know. This doesn't help if you're a filmmaker. And he would have to say, literally have to say, do you think I do a bad thing, Bart? <laughs> so, you know, it's like men behaving badly in the midst of all amazing things. And I was usually the man behaving badly in some way. So it, it took me into a world of, in the Philippines, say, into a world of slums and, I mean, slums that were had 400,000 people in them, or slums where you're outriders, the police wouldn't go in with you, or it took you into a world of, I just hard to describe, I don't think of myself as adventurous at all, actually, but I realized that I've been in places, through, just through what God's doing in my life, that. I wouldn't dream of going if, I, if that wasn't what, what was going on. So I, I'll give an example. Like one of our shoots, one of our films was um, not for Ryan. It, it was for a charity. And we'd done a film for them that had been very successful. The BBC had given us all the footage because the founder of this charity had rescued a reporter when he was shot. So under fire, he'd rescued one of their reporters and they, they love this particular charity because of that. And, And the guy had done that, the man who founded the charity, had done that when he was in charge of the UN forces in Bosnia. And so he was a colonel in charge of the Gurkhas. And then he wouldn't think of himself as a religious man at all. But God spoke to him once in his life and told him to found this charity, really, for um, children of war and violence and for children. So we'd done a film for him and that worked really well. And then he came back and said, look, I'd like you to go to Africa with me to show that Africans are the solution, not the problem in this film. But I'd also like you to film the worst orphanages in Eastern Europe um, to show that people getting people out into other orphanages isn't the solution. It's getting them into homes and families and so on. And um, so your goal is to make a film that will show the European Union how that can be done, but also show people how Africans, the hearts of Africans, are really the solution in Africa. And he said, it's going to be 12 minutes long. Can you can you do this? And as he spoke, and it's hard to explain this part of my life, I'll talk about it a bit more. Uh, there's always been this voice in my life, a, a voice of the Holy Spirit, and, and that voice said, well... If he can get you into the very worst orphanage in Eastern Europe, yes, you'll be able to help him close down those five worst orphanages and do all these things. Anyway, part of that journey took me to Sierra Leone at the end of the war, where I remember once being, we were on our way down to film rebels who'd fought everyone, killed everyone. Um, You know, the, the child soldiers, you know, the first thing they do is where people have them kill their parents and so on. And we were going down to film a young guy, a young tailor, 15 years old, who'd been hacked and left for dead for three days and so on. And that was the story we wanted to capture. Um, But it meant going down and down through the end of the war and and so on. And um, I remember a hotel, which had been blasted to pieces and no one wanted to sleep in a particular room because um, the fan was on permanently, couldn't be switched off. And it was that slump. So it was like about, a foot and a half above the bed as it's on this slant of spinning, you know. So as usual, if you're the director, if you lead a team or something, that's your room, you know. So I just remember going to sleep in this room. And, and by the way, there was some crap and stuff from just mud and shit and everything about six inches high around the whole room. So it wasn't pretty. It wasn't smelling nice or anything like that. But I just remember going to bed and saying to God, okay. Just don't wake me up. And wake me up with a start in the middle of the night. I'll be decapitated. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this kind of thing. And and then you you went down and, and it was this was the privilege of it. And we got down there and there was some, again the United Nations were down there and who they had in custody were seven year olds. I think the oldest was twenty two. And these were rebels, as I said, who had fought every side in the war. And um, I'd come to film them because we were there and. We'd filmed our tailor, and here we are. And uh, the guy, the colonel in charge said, look, sir, uh, can I ask you one favor, and not to film them, because I don't know what will happen. We haven't disarmed them yet. They're in a holding camp with all their arms, and all hell could break loose if you walk in with a film camera. And I said, of course, you know, I wouldn't film them. I, how stupid that would be. I, of course I wouldn't do that. But can I just walk in and have a look at them, and just walk at them? and and, and uh, I don't know what this is, but I love looking in people's eyes. I love looking into their souls, really. So he said, sure. So he said, but you go in alone. So I said, okay. So I just walked up and down. I couldn't speak their language and just walked down these lines of faces with guns and everything. And in their faces, people asked me afterwards, what did you see? And I said, oh, I always saw the same question. And in their eyes, I saw the question. And the question was, is there any way back for me as a human being? And they were seven, they were 18, they were 15, they were 11. The oldest, i they say, was about 22. And so that's been the great privilege of my life, that just to see things that only maybe afterwards you even understand the privilege of that, of being, of being right in someone's soul, in a way.
0: Okay. I am floored by these, by these stories. Like before, before we ask the questions of how you ended up in these situations, I I need to know what, what have you done with your response to such incredible and horrific, like the full spectrum of humanity, of miracles and trauma. How have you stewarded your response to that? How, how have you held
2: that? Well, one of the things I think that I should say about miracles is I'm not a miracle chaser. Uh, I've seen many miracles. Um, I've seen almost every miracle you can imagine. But miracles kind of don't interest me. Yes, they are the power of God bursting into human humanity. But miracles that I've seen usually are either funny or like comic in a bad way sometimes or in a good way or they're tragic. But they're always the beginning of something. They're always just a door opening. Um, so an example would be uh, a woman was you know, healed. She was carried in on a stretcher. And the filmmaker in you says, okay, I'm not just going to accept this. So a team goes up the mountain for five hours. You, know, you send them up and say, just film everything. Just want to see what's really going on here. And they get up there and they find a family. The father's in shock because he was going to divorce the woman. She's laying the, show the hole she's laying in for five years since she got crippled and so on. Um, her child's delighted because Mama's walking and so on. And the family's in chaos because of this miracle. That for me is a miracle. That Miracles are the beginning of something. They open a door and it's just the beginning, you know? Whereas uh, I remember, remember being with Reinhardt and the biggest crowd we ever. Had was 2.2 million in Lagos. Usually it was about 350,000 or something you're looking out over. And we just stood there and he said, You know, people associate me with this crowds and miracles, but I'd swap it all for one soul. And right then I thought, That's why I'm working with you. That's why these five years are fine. Because in a curious way, what seeing all those miracles did was it reminded me that the real miracle is when. Someone comes alive when someone, uh, you know, learns who they, who they are, um, it's when someone knows how magnificent they are. Uh, my vision of people, my, my vision of life is, of, of each person, not just Christians, but is that God loves them overwhelmingly. Every day, he, he can't stop loving you. He'll never stop loving each one completely. So he, he wants to give his whole being to this person. And usually people have no idea of that. They're so magnificent and, and like so here's God just adores them literally and wants to give his something. up and and they think of themselves as tiny or rejected or and they are and as they say. So people become giants when they actually know who mm-hmm. they are and God's love for them. I've never seen that not be true. And and sometimes it happens through deep tragedy. Like I call these people significant nobodies. Uh, Usually when you're filming a charity or song, it began with a very ordinary person, a tragedy came into their life, so they dedicated to their, their life, to that tragedy being averted in other lives. And these people who could have led tiny ordinary lives, really, and I don't mean that badly at all, but suddenly become these giants, and they pursue, and they won't give up in the face of authority, and they become just raging lions. And I think everyone's that. I think every inside everyone, that's what God sees, is this lion, this incredible person. This, um. So how did I respond to all that? Uh, two, in two ways. I thought, well, okay, you've seen the third world, and you've seen how people live and how they live that and how they live that through community, usually, and so on. So wherever you go, build community, build the body of Christ. The next thing is, um, the very least you can do is pour out your life. These people live, have to live every day under immense hardships. So whether you're a writer or a filmmaker, don't don't complain to me how difficult it is. At the very least, you can be a white martyr the way they have to be real martyrs every day. The very least you can do is pour your life out and not look back, you know. So, so you... You must serve, in a way. That, that's where it put me, was whatever you do with your work, your writing, you must try and serve this world. You, you must um, have a dialogue with it. So when people say, what's your calling? I say, well, you know, to understand it, it's to have this dialogue with the world, to have this dialogue with humanity and so on, it's a calling of exile. You have to go into exile. Like you've probably gathered, and um, I'll talk about Christ in a minute, that I adore Christ. You know, he's from Little Boy, i I was given to him before I was born, to God before I was born. But but really, all that has to be left behind in some way. You have to so know that's inside you. That's that's so much part of your life that you go into exile. You go and talk the language of the people you're sent to. You go and talk the language of the world. You, you're not a bit interested in Christianese or religiosity or anything like that. Don't get me wrong. I try and get to the Eucharist every day. Um, But that's just to center me so I can serve the world, you know?
1: I want to chase down so many things that you've just mentioned. One of them you sort of touched on is having this call. It's a call to have an intimate life with God. And it ends up having all of these implications that you didn't anticipate, like a change in your heart for the world in a way that begins to work out. And then for you, there's this thing of, writing and filmmaking. I know, though, from a conversation with uh, a mutual friend, Mark Evans, that you didn't set out in the beginning to be a writer, that that was sort of a pivot initiated by God. Could you talk about how it happened that you even became someone who did this kind of work?
2: It goes back, actually, like most things to my childhood, where I had a kind of schizophrenic childhood, literally. My mother's family were quite wealthy farmers in Ireland. Um, we came to England when I was about six, and uh, it was the life of an immigrant and the ghetto. So in those days in England, I remember walking down the streets with my parents. We were a large family even then. So eventually, there'd be seven children. Already, there were five. And in the windows of the houses, it would say, no dogs, no Irish, no blacks. <laughs> and, and that was... England in the 50s, you know, the early 50s, or like 1954. Um, and so we ended up living in every ghetto you can imagine. We ended up living in bricks. And I remember in uh, a large room, a small room, you cooked on the landing and the loo was, was two stories down. And I remember one day going down to the toilet There was no loo paper down there, but there was peeling wallpaper that was hopeless. So I used some of that. And within an hour, the whole family was on the streets, pushing their pram, homeless, kicked out, and actually heading for what was a very uh, notorious place, Newington Lodge, where they separated men from their families. And three families lived in a room about the size of a normal living room. And I had to live with that. I, I put us on that journey. So I. Us out of the, that particular ghetto into Newington Lodge. After that, we lived in for three years in a Victorian poorhouse along with three thousand other people. They did a survey on that. They said anyone who lives here longer than three months will go mad. Um, it was it was that kind of life. And yet, every summer, as soon as school was out, the night school was out, we would be on the boat train to Ireland and to Dublin, and then down to where our parents had a farm, and we'd have three amazing months on the farm and it was glorious and you're outdoors and doing things every day and then you come back to the ghetto and um, now in the ghetto uh, there was two important things probably to say about it or three uh, and to do with writing first of all Hemingway as many other people said you know the best training to be a writer is an unhappy childhood (laughs) well By that, I didn't have an unhappy childhood in the normal way, like the family. It wasn't to do with an unhappy family, although there was divisions and pressures and and dysfunction all over the place. It was more uh, to go to the shop. You took your life into your hands. There were gangs on every corner. They spat on you. If you reacted, they probably killed you. And so it was one of those things where, you know, every day was that adventure of staying alive. Um. But inside the house, the one thing my parents did was amazing. They bought books. and they bought job lots of books. So it wasn't kind of literature. There was Zane Grey. There was, um, you know, Jane Austen. And so as a seven year old, you didn't read literature, you read stories. And you didn't, no one told you that one was literature and the other it wasn't. You just read them all and it was either a good story or a bad story. And then in the midst of that, I had a father who was probably the greatest storyteller I've ever known. I mean, the Abbey Theatre, back in the old days of Sean O'Casey, wanted to take him there when he was 15 and his mother wouldn't let him go. And so so he ended up putting his brothers through college. He, he worked as a laborer all his life. But he told these stories that just were fascinating. And like, uh, later I'd be at the National Film School. I'd be whatever, 23 years old or something, thinking, can I ever tell a tele- story as great as my father but side by side with that would be the usual uh, shame culture, I, our islands like Japan shame culture so uh, you know I, I asked my uncles who are rich and I said guys you know when I was older I said do, do you never think about this, your sister lived in the ghetto and we'd come here and, and they looked right at me and said yeah but every time they came we offered your parents to buy them a house and they would say no thank you <laughs> And that would be typical shame culture, no thank you. You know, um, And then the other side was my father. He was brilliant, but he had a despair in him. So he literally, I found out after he died that he'd written plays that were great, but every birthday he'd burn one. And one he kept for seven years, and finally he burnt that. So the message, the hidden message, the record playing in our house was, no matter how talented or great you are, You'll never achieve anything. My brother was probably one of the best footballers anyone had ever seen. His teacher was the captain of Wales. as an international team. He said he was the best young kid he'd ever seen playing football. Whenever the big teams like Spurs and Arsenal would come to scout him, he wouldn't show up. Because the record playing was, no matter how talented you are, you will never in. So he became an alcoholic and addict and so on. Um, and a very violent drunk. Um, so... Uh, he had a great end. I mean, he 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 came to a fantastic place in a miraculous way. But um, but, boy, it, but That was the kind of background. It, it wasn't just that you read the books, but life itself was like a story. You know, every day was a story. It was a story of survival. I, I worked, you know, during the summer holidays with one of the. I mean, all the drug addicts, the drug lords in England lived in our estate at one point um, in 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 London, sorry. And I worked with one of the hoodlums, you know, during the summer. I polished brass. I polished Eros and Piccadilly and other statues around London. And he'd tell me stories. And I said, tell me about, because I love stories. And I'd say, tell me stories about what you did growing up. And he wasn't very old anyway. He said, oh, what did we do? We'd get a big furniture lorry, the whole gang. We'd drive round. We'd let the ramp down the back. We'd plow out and beat up anyone on the street. And I said, okay. And. Um, And then, you know, I was at boarding school and so on. And at the very end of working with him in the summer, he gave me a little hammer. And he said, now, if you ever have any problems with anyone, just, I find it really helps to bang them right here in the forehead, right just between the eyes, and you'll have no more problems. And I thanked him very much and said, that wasn't my life. And so, on. but this, so it was like, Humanity and all its colours were all around you on a daily basis. It wasn't just in the books, which were amazing. Um, it was living this life, which was you didn't choose, but there it was. You know,
0: the Hemingway reference. I mean, just that your father burning a, a play, he, something he's written, one year on his birthday, is yeah, it's poetic in its
2: brokenness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, and it's no, no in that. And here's the bit that's kind of interesting i guess um i didn't know this until i was about 45 and um night i i'm in the editing room with much who came came as an intern for three years she had to make a big choice she had to choose between doing a doctorate in films you've already been to berlin film school or coming and being an intern for three years and she came to be an intern and then she worked with me for about another nine years she was a brilliant cameraman brilliant writer brilliant everything you know Whatever, editor. But one night we're in the editing room and we're rushing to finish a job, and she says, Bart, you see that bottle of wine over there? Can we open it? Because I've got something to say to you. And I thought, wow, okay, <laughs> what's, what's this going to be? Are you, are you quitting? Are you leaving? Are you What's going on? So we opened the bottle of wine and we started to drink the wine, and she said, Now, so I want to tell you something about your life uh, that you may or may not know. Which is, so before I came, to be your intern, I did one last kind of big pilgrimage from Germany to Russia. We walked. It was a kind of incredible walk, 700 of the meters. They lived rough. They lived in barns, they, which for her would have been terrible. She was very finicky. She's the kind of person, if you're out filming, like whales in Baja or something, she wouldn't go to the loo till you got back to the hotel. So for her to walk rough to Russia must have been terrible for her. Um, anyway, she said, um, I'm in the Hermitage. Uh, in St. Petersburg, and I'm I'm in front of I icon of the Trinity. She said, I didn't know what it was. She said. And I understood why, which was that she had a kind of weeping skin. Piece. It wasn't leprosy, but it was something really bad. And she was miraculously healed of that when she was 17. And her whole family got changed and converted. So she had no background of icons or anything like that. And now she's sitting in front of one, and she can't leave it. She's totally drawn to this Icon of the Trinity, the Oaks of Mamre by Arugula, and I spoke to him. just said, uh, no, he said, when you go to Brook Place, where Barton and Patricia live, you'll find this icon in every room, and there's nine buildings. It's a huge center with 26 acres of gardens and whatever. He said, uh, you'll find it in every room because they have a, they love the Trinity. Um, and then he said, Oh, and by the way, just so you know, Bart was given to me before he was born. His mother lost a child at birth, and he belongs to me. So I was speechless. Yeah, No one had told me this. So the next day, I drove 30 miles to where my mother lived and said, is this true? And she said, I thought you knew. I said, well, no one told me. I said, I sensed it. I grew up talking to God and gave my life to God as a little boy, a tiny boy and all that. But no one told me. And she said, you must have known. Uh, she said, look, did you never work it out? I would send you to Ireland when you were seven with your five-year-old brother and your three-year-old sister. And I said, yeah, I, looking back, I wonder now. And she said, well, that was because I knew nothing was going to happen to you until you grew up. (laughs) I thought you were quite safe. And it was kind of twisted logic. But so I I grew up with um, a mother who had immense faith in the midst of this chaos, stories and so on. And I grew up with a grandmother who prayed about 12 hours a day and really prayed. And because I'd been given to God, the expectation was, well, I would go and join her for a couple of hours, wouldn't I? When I was a little boy, so I did. And so what is hard to explain, and I don't like people saying this much actually, but sometimes, you know, God has always spoken to me in a very chatty way, like when I go to the Eucharist, and then sometimes in life he speaks in ways that are pretty spectacular. Like you'll say, uh, like someone had come to our house, wanted to stay in that. We had a whole house, we had a huge mansion, you know. And um, we were living in community. We shared everything in common for tons of years. And so hospitality and people who had problems, so it was, it's totally normal. So one day, we're at Sunday, we're having kuka summers in this massive library. And uh, there's this lovely guy, lovely instructor from the Isle of Wight, a, a sailing instructor. And he wants to stay the night. And that's great. And then God just says to me very casually, says he can't stay the night. I said, well, why is that? He says, because you've got lots of trouble people in the community at the moment, and you can't afford the energy it would take for him to stay the night. I said, what, what are you talking about? And this little dialogue, in a dialogue, you know, I've known since I was a little boy. So he said, oh, well, actually, he's giving his soul to the devil. So we we're having cucumber sandwiches, and here we are. And, uh, now, people think it must be very nice for God to speak to you. Well, it's not at all. You have to work out, what the hell do you say to this person? So I hand him a cucumber sandwich, and I say, apropos of nothing, do you believe in the devil? And everyone around me, the whole community, said, oh, for goodness sake, Bart, we're having, we're having lunch. You know, Can you just leave it alone? <laughs> and he says, no, no, I'll answer. He said, yeah, I believe in the devil. In fact, I belong to the devil. I give my soul to the devil. So I'm just saying that it doesn't happen all the time in life, but it does happen. And uh, sometimes it leads to miracles. Sometimes, And I don't like it very much for two reasons. Uh, one is I can't deny it, and it's part of my life. And part of my life is to bear witness that God is real and works and things happen. Uh, but the other part is it's not really important. God speaks to people in different ways. Like um, I have a friend I'm making a film with, how God speaks to him is through encounters. He'll meet someone, and it's completely miraculous. You know, he doesn't think so, because he doesn't think of it that way. But slowly starting to, because he's starting to say, oh, my goodness, how could I have met this person? Or, you know, it, it, so God speaks that way too. Usually he speaks through, you know, he speaks through the Bible. He speaks through our, the brethren. He speaks to our brothers and sisters. He speaks like I always have a spiritual director because if God speaks to you like He speaks um, to me, then you have to be under authority. You have to be submitted. You don't, you know, you can't mess around. You can't get isolated. When I'm isolated, I'm just horrible. I think when anyone, when everyone gets isolated, they're just terrible. Terrible, bad things happen when people get isolated, and so you have to find the very best community you have. You have to surround yourself with people who hold you, call you to faithfulness, who, whatever. But anyway, I, I can't deny he talks, but it's not very important. Like when people say, what's important? I say love, you know, um, love's what's important. The widow's might, who gives everything? That's what's important to God. You know, calling is an important term. It's, it's both like, in the kingdom of heaven, where the guy says, what, what's Jerusalem? He says, nothing. And then he says everything. So calling's like that. Calling's really important because it's God's calling. You, The calling you live is Christ's calling. It's his calling, which he gives to you to live. If you don't live it, it will never be lived uniquely in that way. I remember Ryan saying to me one day about something, something that really shocked me. He said, One day, you know, he said, I was very unhappy about something God had asked me to do. And he said, then God said to me, well, you weren't my first choice. The the first two just said no. (laughs) And it's not that God stops and doesn't get done what he wants. But the way it's done, the unique way it's done, depends on all of us saying yes, uniquely. So we have each person in this world has a calling on their life, but the calling belongs to Christ. It's not my calling. Um, I get the privilege of, of being the drop and he's the ocean, you know, he's the drop. And if you really know that, if you really know you're the drop and he's the ocean, oh, wow, your life isn't going to be dull.
1: To go back just a minute, I love what you're saying about uh, hearing the voice of God and miracles and the, the observation of we think that often we want these things. Um, not recognizing, like, in one regard that they'll have, like, actually uh, dramatic ramifications. I've even said, or acknowledged sometimes um, to peers in the circle here of, like, you know, the irritating thing with, like, developing real conversational intimacy with God is that the things that he starts asking you to do start being... Uh, more and more requiring, almost like um, sometimes not necessarily dramatic, but simply more encompassing. The balance that you just set up where like on the one hand, as you build um, or walk out an intimate relationship with God, things happen that like are requiring or, you know, maybe you'd rather not do that he's asking you to do. But it becomes possible when you have a vision of calling that actually is sort of uh, large enough a vision of what it looks like to live a life with Jesus that's so like uh, large enough to hold the radical requests that Jesus
2: will make of you. And, and the thing I'd say about it, it's, you know, not always, but sometimes you glimpse how he opens doors and closes them. And it's pretty brutal. If you give your life to God, uh, let's go back a bit to just talk a little bit about how do you develop this conversation. If I look at Moses, at something like that, what strikes me is not that you know he parts the Red Sea or something. Uh, it's that he has this intimacy, you know, this intimacy with God. It's, that's what interests me about him. I mean, to be honest with you. Um, in the kingdom of heaven, gift is just gift. <laughs> you, you know, great gifts, whatever they are, to teach or to be prophetic or, you know, to strike the water and part it. That's just God's power in your life. You know, The real pearl of great price in the kingdom of heaven is love. And many, many people have said it. One act of pure love is worth more than all the miracles, you know, uh, because that's God's nature. His nature, his defining characteristic is compassion. And so anyone who has compassion in their life, for example, in a deep, radical way, I think God is in people's lives in ways we don't understand. You know. And, and I think, like if someone said to me, where do you begin to have this deep relationship with God? I would say, well, the hardest step is not becoming silent or, or you know, or whatever it is. The hardest step is, will you trust that he loves you completely? Will you trust that? Will you, every day, will that be my daily discipline? That's my daily discipline for sure, because you don't feel this every day, half on it. You feel like a, a little failed worm often or something. Um, but will, in the midst of that, will I trust that God completely loves me and has called me and is one million percent behind me, um, cheering me on, just loving? And if He doesn't give me things, it's because he loves me so much He he plays the, the, he plays a big game. He plays for souls, you know? He plays for... So, for example, in my life, uh, uh, an outreach of that that did, didn't come for a long, long time was realizing, okay, if you're the drop and he's the ocean, and if in the, you know, the Our Father, where he taught us to pray, he says, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, as in heaven. Okay, so what's that mean? That means he longs for his will to be done on the earth. He asks us to pray for that. He longs for his compassion. He longs for his forgiveness to just be. So, okay, what I'm gonna do then is join that forces in a big way. So I started off by saying, okay, everyone I drive past today, I want you to bless. I want what you want for them to be done like you tell me to pray, your will be done. So yeah, your will be done in their lives today, (laughs) or in the city of Los Angeles, or in this stadium while I'm watching or something. Um, And I'll have faith for that. You know, as I'll be the lightning rod for your desire. It's nothing to do with me, it's your desire. That's what you desire, you love people so deeply. Your whole longing is for them to know you, to know who they are, to be set on fire, to do great things, okay. I'll be the lightning rod for your desire. And I won't think small about that. But the consequence of that is if I'm in an Uber, if I'm on a train, most of the time I'm just interceding. If I have spare time, if I wake in the middle of the night, it's just because he wants me to intercede for the next few hours or something. So it's realizing you're in the big game. We're all in the big game. It goes all the way back. I was six years old. I'm in Ireland. It's a storm. The Atlantic's on my right with a sheer drop-off, a sloping drop-off down to. coming down the road towards me are people walking behind a, a hearse. It's like something out of a film, you know And the voice speaks, you know, this beautiful little still voice that says, "Bah, just understand one thing: All that matters now is how that person loved person being buried, you know, and that was six years old, and I thought, oh, wow, and then when I was getting a little boy, God gave me the word for my life, he said, the word for your life is it's the Father's will that nothing be lost, now, that word will, in our world, is a power word, willpower, I bend you to my will, and so on, but actually in the Aramaic and in the Hebrew, it's a fire word, it means God's on fire with desire and love that nothing be lost. He's eaten up. His entrails are burning from it. It's got a sexual connotation. It's got the connotation of beloved, you know? So the word for my life is a fire word. It's that God's on fire. So the very least I can do is be on fire. I can the very least I can be, do is become trust and become a lightning rod for his desire for human beings and for souls and for us and for all of it. So that's the kind of wider connotation it comes to film, is part of that, but it's a tiny part, I would say. The real part is actually saying, okay, if I am the drop and he's the I'm nothing, I'm the drop, but he's the ocean, and the ocean wants me to be the lightning rod for his desire, mm-hmm. wants all of us. And we can do this. So how do you reach a point where you believe that's true, that you believe in that love and you believe in that world you're in? the cosmic world of, of his salvation. As Paul says, we complete the sufferings of Christ. Um, how do you, like this little boy, I offered myself to him as a victim to his love. I said, everything that happens in my life, uh, whether it's good, bad, suffering, everything I offer to you to use for souls. I, I was just a little boy. I almost didn't know what I was saying, but I did. And he honors that. Like, um, I'm going to tell you just one story. I mean, my life's strange, I understand, but everything I say to you is true and people just have to make of it what they can. Mm -hmm. But I remember once um, I got a a letter from someone who ran parts of the BBC, very high up. And the letter was mysterious. It said, where are you? What are you doing? I'm still interested in anything you want to do. And I didn't know this person. So I, I took Patricia, who's my wife, and. We went to the BBC and he was there in his big corner office and so on. And he said, finally, you come to see me. And I said, I don't know you. And he said, yes, you do. You know me. And I said, how do I know you? And he said, well, I saw the feature film you made at film school and I sent you a note. And that feature film had cost me my life. They let me stay seven years at the National Film School to finish this film, four years longer than the course ended and so on. And um, so he said, I sent you a note. I've only sent one note like that. It was a very high praise note and so on. Very embarrassing, actually, he said. And I said, well, tell me what it said, because I still don't recall what you're talking about. So he said the exact wording of the note, and I said, I laughed. I said, oh, I threw that note in the bin. I didn't know it was a joke or real. (laughs) It was... it was certainly amazing. And he went from being really angry and clearly wanting to, from the moment I walked in, it was like he wanted to hit me. And then he went white and he said, why? And I said, because it wasn't signed. You did. I didn't know who had sent the note. You never signed it. And he said, I signed it. I said, you never signed it. I threw it in the bin because you never signed it. And he, said, and he just was stunned. And he said, do you know what that note was about? I said, no, not really. And he said, that note was about the fact the BBC were going to do film. And we had chosen six people and the usual suspects, people like Norman Stone, who was a partner with for 30 years, or Mike Bradford, who had worked for He went through the list. And he said, you were going to be the seventh, but you were going to be the jewel in the crown. We were going to give you your own editing rooms. You could make whatever films you wanted. You could have your own crews and so on. He said, but you never came. You didn't reply to the note. I said, well, you never signed it. I would have come. So I walked out, and this is the bit that people have to understand. I walked out and I said to God, you have to talk to me now. And he said, well, you would have been tempted by it. You've been out of film for, what, five years now. You're not meant to be in film. You've just told him, you know, certain things and so on. he said, you weren't meant to be in film. And I said, look, let's talk here. Our calling is to have a dialogue with the world. It's to deep, go deep with the world. You know, Do you think being the jewel in the crown at the BBC wouldn't have been a really good thing in terms of that dialogue? And he said these words. He said, as a little boy, you gave me a life. Do you want to take it back? And I said, no. And he said, well... Your life has to be the way your life is. You gave me permission to have your life, to close doors and to open them. And I close them and I open them because your life has to be the way your life is. And do you choose that? And I said, yeah. And so another story just before that was that at film school, there was one prize every student in the world wanted to win. It was a little festival, Belgium Festival, Naki Heist. They gave you everything you needed to make a film. It was this, you had to write short, short film. Uh, Mike Radford, who went on to become a great director, did a postino, lots of things. He came to me and said, will you teach me how to write this short story about it? I said, sure. So I did, and he won the prize and went on to make a film and so on. Well, about, again, four or five years later, Two of our cars in community crashed into each other one terrible winter on the drive. They skidded and just smashed into each other. So I, I just went up to clean up, went with a dustbin and brush, and I pull back the coating of the car to get the glass down. And a letter falls down, lands at my feet, and it's from the Melbourne mm-hmm. Film Festival. And it says, you've won the first prize. You have a month to claim it, or we give it to someone else. So someone had gone to the post office in the community, got my letter, to put it on the dashboard. It had fallen into the dashboard of the car. And now five years later, five years too late, I get it, saying you've won the prize. And that's God. That's God. That's God closing doors, opening doors, you know. So when you walk with him, life is not going to be dull, but it's not going to be pretty either. He will slam doors open. And sometimes I make the mistake of slamming doors. He's opened, you know, he's done a lot of that in my life, but he's, he's engaged. He's fully engaged. God is just overwhelmed with love for each person on, on this, in this world who's ever born completely overwhelmed. He's in their life. He's with them. He's for them. And people, spiritual life just explodes when they pursue the discipline of believing that when they believe that I don't feel like it this morning, it's raining outside in L.A. curiously, or but actually God's right here in my life. The Holy Spirit's alive in me uh, wanting to do things today. And sometimes they will be tiny things, and sometimes they're mysterious, and sometimes they're not at all what I want. Like I I went, for example, to a party where, the whole point was a friend of David Oyelowo um, said, David's going to be there. I want you to meet him. So I go. He's right there. We go afterwards. We're going to have, we won go to a pub. We're going to have a drink, uh, everyone. And I'm standing here at the bar. He's, he's here at my right. And God says, see this person on your left bar? Uh, that's the person I want you to talk to tonight. So for two hours, I stand next to David Oyelowo. And I talk to the person on my left. I, I don't even say hi to David or yellow. So it's not pretty. <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's, it's not what you always think, you know. And and certainly people, you know, God speaks in different ways to different people. He doesn't have to speak the way he speaks to me. And my life's my life, you know. Um, and, and I think people are lucky he doesn't speak that way to them quite often. <laughs> um, but he does speak. He's, he's involved, it's intimate. So so for me, the key to intimacy with God is to believe he loves you, to believe that he's radically committed to that. If you can, even one millimeter of your soul can accept that, your calling will be lived.
1: I love, and I'm very uh, disrupted by the value system you're describing. Um, it dovetails with, A recent conversation, the inside of which I owe to uh, Pete Gregg, but it's like a story that I had glossed over, but really comes to mind in the story you're telling, which is, you know, the fact that post-Egypt, they've made it through war, desert, et cetera, et cetera. And for the first time, all of Israel is standing on the edge of what they've longed for for generation after generation. And, you know, God says to Moses, like, you get to go in now but I'm not going to go with you. And then Moses' response is like, no deal. And you just have this incredible moment of like, you are about to get everything that you have longed for. You're going to get the realization of what you hoped your life would be and knew you were called to be, but you're going to lose a level of intimacy with me in that like you get, you know, this the the model of Moses going like, no, i like, if you are not going, we're not going, and if that means being stranded for a really long time, and obviously then he negotiates and is like, please have us go with you, or please come with us, that we can actually have this union with you. And just hearing what you're saying, like uh, what is asked of you and where the invitation is, is to accept walking in the actual union with God, which will mean like, saying no to things that looked incredible, being invited into things that didn't, but like getting to walk out and receive what you were built for, which is to know God and to enjoy Him. And then that produces an, a unique effect on the world. Um, I just don't think that I've heard quite as many stories um, in a in a positive way that reveal how intense that can be and actually like sort of force the question in me, um, even just thinking about, like, much lower stakes of, like, uh, and is the value here um, to walk out my life with God and to keep giving my life to Him and to keep, like, prioritizing with Him or is it to keep pushing in the direction of what I think I have been promised in my calling?
2: Yeah. What's the point of being the drop without the ocean, you know? Well, what would that be, look like? And it sometimes it gets rough, you know, so, like, I was out of film for a long time and then and the time came where I could go back in. I had no faith for that. But there's this beautiful bit in Paul where he says sacrifice on the altar of your brothers and sisters' faith. I could I could do that. I could have their faith be my my thing, you know. So anyway, uh at one point I, I started to get invitations like to equinox which is where all the a come in to work with writers or sundowns so, or suddenly out of the blue you're being asked to come and be um, an advisor and be part of all this and you're the only non-a-list in this room for sure and anyway my first night at equinox is at this big chateau chateau bay Chevelle, and fantastic they open their wine cell- so it's, it's amazing uh, every night I and mean, it's a, so anyway the first night there's a knock on the door at midnight and it's James Hart, James Hart, who wrote Hook and Contact and tons of things. And there's eight A-list people in, writers. Uh, and he said, uh, we have a proposition for you. We call you the undiscovered country. And there's eight of us, and we will offer you 6 to $7 a year just a script doctor for us, if you'll come to Hollywood and do them. And I'm just like everyone else. I think, oh, my God, how wonderful. And as he's talking... Literally, God puts a tombstone in front of me. As he's talking, he's talking about the six or seven million dollars in Hollywood. And on the tombstones written, he was a great script doctor. And God kind of says, basically, I don't think so. <laughs> so I say, no, thank you. A big agency offered me the same amount of money about a year later. And Honestly, there are times in your life where you just think, am I crazy? Did I really turn down these kind of things? Or right now in my life, right now, um, two months ago, I withdrew from the company I founded with someone, great guy who has run big companies um, in film and so on. Uh, we have a Chinese investors. There's all sorts of possibilities and so on. There's all the problems of getting money out of China, of course. But I mean, it was fantastic. But the kind of creativity or the kind of, for me, business has to be built through community. You probably gathered that the body of Christ is like the core for me. And we had a different vision about how to do that. So through my wife, through my spiritual director, through my own writing team who would lose their jobs if I left the company, they all said, you have to leave, Bar, because God's blessing on your life comes about when you live community and build this way, not that way, not. The corporate way, you know, which is fine. I he, I think this guy is fantastic. He's committed Christian. He's much better business than me. Well, you know, I, I think he's fantastic. But God's saying, come out. So we come out. And what do we come out to? We come out to, you know, insurance. Given my age, we have Patricia and I. We have insurance. Costs us thirty six thousand dollars a year. You know, we have rent in L A. is phenomenal. We suddenly don't have money. Um, we have to scramble and whatever we do, this and that and so on. So right now, we're in the midst of where, yeah, this, this things potentially can land, projects and so on. But right now, we're making through the end of the month. We're seeing how we can get through the next month. Or do we release this little pension we have in England to get through? It? Yeah, we do. Um, and so that's God. That's the journey with God. It never, you know, it's always this challenge. And will you trust? And the core of it is that the core of it is, is he with me on this? Did he send me here? Yes, he did. How do I deal with that? You know, uh, the core of it is this just daily journey where you trust. It's not easy. Uh, it's scary as hell. And who cares? What, what? Where else would we go? You know, as Peter says, where else can we go? Because you're the ocean. We're the, we're the drop. But together... We can be the lightning rod for that desire, for that love, for that mercy, for that compassion that just is beyond comprehension. And I think, truly, I think most people, the problem is they have no idea of the ocean that's his love, that's just lying to. I mean, the problem isn't how do I have intimacy with God. The problem is really simple, is do I believe God wants to give me everything I can possibly contain of him? And do I believe that even a little bit? Because if I can believe it just a little bit, I'll become a spiritual giant. And I don't mean that in a bad way, you know, giants versus pygmies, I don't mean that at all. I mean, in terms of who heaven sees me to be, I'll become, start to live that a little bit.